trauma can be like an emotional sledgehammer to the brain, rewiring your nervous system so that it's always revving in the red. It could leave you feeling permanently edgy, your startle response on a tripwire. You'll be quick to rage. You might struggle to concentrate or sleep. You might have flashbacks or bury the memories until they fossilize. You might sink into the bottle, cut yourself off from others, or worse. But early efforts to treat post-traumatic stress disorder with psychedelics suggests that substances like hallucinogenic mushrooms, ayahuasca and MDMA, ecstasy on the street, might be able to rewire the brain back into a healthier, calmer state. Welcome to The Psychonauts, a podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic psychiatry as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. Please visit the website, psychonauts.co.za, in case you missed previous episodes, or you can catch up on iTunes. Please be warned, the opening scene of this episode does contain some graphic images of self-harm, but it's a short scene, and there's a happy ending, so please push through to the end. My name is Leonie Joubert, and this is episode 3, Shell-Shocked. Sometimes the best place to start a story is in the middle. This is one of those stories. It was a Friday morning, sometime in autumn, when the Cape Town wind remembers it doesn't always have to blow. For Kate Harrington, though, it felt as though a tornado was roaring through her. She was crouched on her front step. Her heart was screaming in her ears. Her chest was burning like it was filled with molten lead. She could barely pull air into her lungs. There was a feral scream trapped in her throat. Her body was burning with an acid rage, a panic, fury, helplessness. Ice cubes spun to a stop in the bottom of the glass. A half tumbler of whiskey, alcohol scouring her throat, rummaging in the toolbox for the utility knife. Fast and direct, she drew its edge across the pale skin of her inner arm always in the same place, adding another layer of crosshatch lines over the fresh scar tissue. The elastic of her skin peeled back neatly with each line, fanning into tiny white cliff edges of tissue, which quickly disappeared beneath a tide of red. Ribbons of glistening scarlet tumbled down her arm, and in an instant, the tornado was gone. Remembering it now, She says it's as though someone literally flicked the switch and the winds died. The boughs on the trees settled. The leaves came to rest in piles around her. She could hear bird sounds twittering through the calm again. People don't understand cutting, she says in her written message to me. And no, she won't talk about this face to face. Not even with her shrink. Most people think that cutting is a manipulation of sorts, a cry for attention, some kind of a foe play at suicide. It's not. She tells me it's like a tranquilizer. It's like that scene in Pulp Fiction, she says, where Vincent Vega 
stabs a hypodermic needle the size of an animal dart right into Mia's chest to jumpstart her heroin-overdosed heart. Only it's not adrenaline in the syringe. It's a sedative. The world was returned to order. The rage placated. The rushing in her ears was gone. The pain would follow later. There would be weeks of hiding the tattered skin, a few months before she could wear short sleeves again. But none of that mattered now. Just the calm, the regained control, the sense that the world wasn't spinning beyond a grasp anymore. My research tells me that this kind of self-medication is more common than we realise. But it's something that's done in secret. It's shrouded in shame and embarrassment. People do it in hiding. And this just makes the isolation worse, only widening the chasm between themselves and the connection that they need to find healing. All Kate needed, in that moment, was to yield to the numbing fizz of the endorphins and the booze flooding through her. She'd deal with the pain, the crusted black blood, and the hangover on the other side of this sleep, this blissful sleep. The therapist Sigmund Freud apparently said that we seek out situations that replicate traumatic times in our past, not because we want to continually submit to them as victims, but because we want to gain mastery over them. An abused child goes on to choose one abusive partner after the next, not to willingly subjugate herself to a suite of new abusers but she wants to gain control over circumstances now in a way that she never could in her past. And she'll repeat this pattern until she's called the beasts to heal, until she's whipped them so that they cower at her feet, so that they turn their underbellies up to her in submission. For Kate, the single defining point from her childhood was a moment when her parents dropped her at boarding school at the age of seven and drove away. She isn't even sure what's memory anymore and what's just a composite of the months of agony. But she does remember their car driving out the school gate, the taillights flashing as they paused for the traffic, and then pulled away. Gone. She doesn't remember their departing backs or a last possible glance over their shoulders. There's just the mechanical blinking of those red taillights, and then all love departs. Even now, All these years later, the moment is frozen in time. She's sitting at the top of the stairs in the cavernous foyer of a boarding house. The car has now slipped out of sight. There isn't another soul around, not a voice, not an echo, not a silhouette of another person. The edges of the room retreat into gloomy shadows. She's trapped in a prison cell, alone and desolate. This moment fills every corner of the world, and it has no end. It still doesn't quite make sense to her why the trauma of being torn away from her family affected her so badly. But when she remembers it now, 30 years later, she says it was like having a limb ripped from her body. It was like the pain from that bloody stump just never stopped throbbing. She sobbed almost daily. She'd call home week after week, begging her parents to come and fetch her. 
she couldn't fathom how they seemed to be so impassive to her pleading and wouldn't do anything to help her. She secretly started digging holes in the back of her hand with her geometry compass. So what was happening that so many decades later, the adult Kate was now propelled to gain mastery over the chaos of a time from so many years before, where she felt completely at the mercy of forces beyond her control. She fell in love. She'd had lovers before, but this was different. This connection was like coming home. It was as though the limb was finally reattached and the stump healed. She tells me that every moment together was like returning to the home that she'd been aching for for three decades. But he controlled everything. Where they saw each other. For how long. When. A snatched hour here, a half hour there. Then he'd disappear for days. She wouldn't be able to call him. He wouldn't call her. She wouldn't know when he'd come back. It went on like this for months. Every reconnection was a euphoric homecoming. Every departure was like having the limb torn away again. That Friday morning was one of those departures. Him saying goodbye. Her asking when she'd see him again. Him mumbling that he didn't know. Her realising he'd be gone for days again. Every time this happened, she was back in that stairwell, abandoned and powerless. Not just imprisoned in space, but trapped in time, too. This loneliness felt like it would never end. The madness that engulfed her in that moment literally had the fury of a tornado. She dealt with the panic attacks, the powerlessness, the longing, in any way she could, exercising until she felt bilious. She took antidepressants, tried anti-anxiety meds. She threw back tumblers of scotch. She talked her way through months of therapy. She worked bizarre hours. She barely ate. She hid from the world. And in the worst moments, like this one, she cut herself. It's been a few years now since she finally walked away. She mostly hides the crisscross scars on her forearm with long sleeves and makeup. But the gift of that time was that it took her back to what she now calls the singularity. That short time in her childhood that wrote itself so deeply in her body it feels as though the pain was etched into her DNA. It was that singularity that she visited on her first mushroom journey. The kind of deep psychedelic trip using hallucinogenic mushrooms that we talked about in episode one. The experience was so profound, she says, that she came away from it feeling as though she had died and been born afresh. The insight she got that night was like six years of therapy wrapped up into four hours. It was also like a visit to hell. But it was a journey that she thinks may be the next step in setting her seven-year-old self free from the prison cell of that stairwell. There's a drawing by the Spanish illustrator Alex Noriega that's a wonderful study in Jungian psychology. It's from his collection, Stuff No One Told Me. This particular drawing has those typical naive lines of a children's book illustration. A girl woman with cropped bob-style hair, sitting in a square-edged couch, staring straight ahead. 
shoehorned into the sofa next to her is an outsized Graffalo-style monster, buck-toothed and horned, also staring awkwardly ahead. At the centre of the lounge, two dainty cups of tea steam quietly into the awkwardness between them. You can't get rid of your fears, the caption reads, but you can learn to live with them. There's a speech bubble above the girl woman. More tea? she asks her guest. The trouble, though, with needing to square up with the trauma of your past is that the last thing you want to do is look those monsters full in the eye. So you keep them locked away, down there in the basement. But if you leave them there long enough, they'll start crashing about in the dark, shaking the house until the fittings rattle loose. As an adult, Kate's dark companions were never pretty, or pretty far from the surface. As long as she can remember, her startle response has been on a tripwire. She's always been typically irritable, quick to anger. She dulls her over-revved adrenal system with booze or exercise. In relationships, she's in a permanent state of high alert. She's too needy, too soon, but guarded and watchful, looking for any sign of a threat. When something kicks the tripwire, it's a whirlwind of rage and booze and slurring rants. Her own sweet little brand of madness, she jokes in her email. The adult Kate is highly functional, ambitious, accomplished. But the cowering seven-year-old is still there in her psyche, in an almost catatonic state of shock. I asked my own therapist about this so I could better understand what's happening for children going through that sort of crisis. My shrink tells me that childhood abandonment will do that to you. When a kid doesn't have a secure attachment, this echoes through into their adulthood. Low self-esteem, difficulty regulating emotions, lack of impulse control, separation anxiety, depression, self-medication, self-harm. There's a reason I've chosen to include Kate's story in this series. Here in South Africa, we often joke cynically about middle-class problems. Kate's story is a very middle-class one. You might wonder what all the fuss is about. She was sent off to a great school. She was physically safe. She had food and shelter. There wasn't any threat of violence or abuse. What's the big deal, right? Millions of South African kids experience far worse every day. Real trauma. Rape. Beatings. Neglect. Witnessing extreme violence. Trauma meted out by the very people who are supposed to keep them safe and loved. Here's the thing about childhood trauma. When any seven-year-old in Kate's situation experiences this kind of abandonment and emotional pain for months on end, she'll be so overwhelmed that it will literally feel like her life is threatened. It doesn't matter that she's safe in a physical and material way. The feelings are so overwhelming that she believes she won't survive. If she's exposed to this sort of trauma for long enough, it literally rewires her nervous system for good. A bit like tuning the engine of a car so it's always revving in the red. What she experienced was a kind of emotional neglect. Let's think of it as a form of passive violence. If Kate's story is an idea of what this kind of trauma can do to a kid living in a relatively safe environment, what does it mean for kids who are exposed to active violence in a perpetually unsafe environment? the way that so many South African youngsters do. 
A little later, we're going to take a look at the extent of childhood trauma in South Africa. And I should warn you that it does get a little bit heavy. But before we go there, the good news. Some of the early work in the use of psychedelics to treat PTSD is so promising compared with current treatments that Iraqi war vets in the US are heading down to South America in their droves to have ayahuasca treatments. Ayahuasca is a hallucinogenic brew made from plants that are indigenous to the Peruvian Andes, and it's used in a very similar way to hallucinogenic mushrooms. There's also a legitimate research lab at a US university that's having similar breakthroughs in using MDMA. That's ecstasy on the streets and not a hallucinogen, but has similar impacts on the brain. MDMA is being used alongside conventional talk therapy to treat PTSD in 9-11 firefighters, in police service people, war vets, with rape victims. You name it, people who have been diagnosed with untreatable PTSD, and many of them are reporting themselves to be symptom-free months and even years after just two properly administered dosing sessions on the substance. When I put the series together, I probably shouldn't have split the episodes as I did, because when you think about it, depression, alcoholism, PTSD, they're all fruits of the same bitter tree. And the way psychedelics appear to work to help us manage these conditions all seem to be quite similar. So here's a quick recap from the protocols that we talked about in episode one that are being used by the Imperial College London medical team to treat depression using psilocybin mushrooms. So just to recap, psilocybin is the hallucinogenic compound found in magic mushrooms. So far, this research team have put two groups of people with treatment-resistant depression through a three-month program where they have weekly therapy sessions. Most of the work is just traditional talk therapy to prepare people for and then help them integrate the sessions where they're given the psilocybin. This is the hallucinogenic compound. So it's just two dosing sessions, which usually last about four hours. They're done in a quiet lounge-type environment and with the presence of two therapists. The results from these studies have been very promising. Most of the participants experienced immediate relief from their symptoms. Two-thirds were symptom-free after three months. And these are people who had suffered from depression most of their adult lives and hadn't responded to antidepressants or other forms of therapy. The significant thing is that the mood and behavior changes that come with these brief dosing sessions seem to last well beyond when the substance has left the person's body. This is quite unlike how antidepressants and some anti-anxiety meds work, where you have to keep taking them daily to keep the drug present in your system. These hallucinogens and the MDMA seem to bring about shifts in people's perception about their trauma in a way that loosens up its chokehold on them. I'll put a link on the website to the work being done by a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina. Him and his team have been using MDMA, ecstasy, alongside traditional talk therapy since 2001 to deal with treatment-resistant PTSD. The results from this team's work is very similar to the psilocybin therapy for depression studies. Weeks or even months after the dosing sessions, most of the participants reported being largely symptom-free. Some regarded themselves as completely symptom-free even up to four years later. 
Earlier in the series, I promised that I would talk a little bit about what's going on in the brain for people during these dosing sessions. What's interesting is that it's not just the mechanical changes that take place in the brain to allow these long-lasting benefits. It's actually the subjective experience that the person has while they're in that deep psychedelic state that seems to bring about the changes. Dr. Rosalind Watts, a psychologist with the Imperial College team, gave a talk earlier this year at a conference in which she gave a peek into what that subjective experience is like. Those monsters in the basement that we spoke about earlier, the ones that often metastasize into depression or PTSD or anxiety or self-medication, these psychedelics seem to change the way we're able to relate to those monsters. Watts says that for many of the people who went through the Imperial College psilocybin program, when they described their psychedelic sessions, they said it was like they were able to go right down into the basement and confront those monsters. It was like they had a flashlight, but they also had the courage to shine the light into all the corners and see everything that was skulking about in the darkness. They said that the antidepressants they'd tried in the past had been like shutting the door on the basement stopping them from exploring what was down there. The pills just suppressed everything. They said it's a bit like taking a painkiller for a toothache. It masks the pain, but what you really need is to lance the abscess. These psychedelics seem to allow you to lance the abscess. One of the participants in Watts's study said that he was finally able to understand why his mother had abused him as a child. During one of his psychedelic sessions, He said he developed a huge sense of empathy and understanding for her, realizing how disconnected she'd felt and that she was really suffering as much as he was. He felt compassion for her and said he had a different perspective on things. Many of the participants in these studies said that they emerged with a heightened sense of empathy for themselves and for others, but also that they were able to face traumatic memories and engage with them without feeling overwhelmed by the emotions that they usually associated with those memories. Another one of the Imperial College researchers, Dr. Mendel Keelan, he has a really great analogy to explain what might be happening in the brain itself during these dosing sessions that it allows just two or three deep psychedelic experiences to permanently rewire the nervous system into a calmer, healthier state. Imagine the brain is like a hill that's covered with snow. Through the course of our lives, we engage with the world by taking in information through our senses. We log this information into an internal roadmap that helps us understand this complex and ever-changing environment. Each time information comes in, it's like a sled running down the hill, carving a pathway in the snow. Over time, these trails become more and more fixed. So when new information comes in, it's almost impossible to send the sled down any other route than the one that's already carved into the hillside. We get locked into how we receive and process information, and then of course how we respond to it. The more ingrained the behavior, the harder it is to change. But with psychedelics, Keelan says it's as if we temporarily flatten the snow on the hill so that the trails disappear for a while. Suddenly, the sled can move freely in any direction, exploring new landscapes and cutting new pathways. The ruminative thinking, the hopelessness, the hyper-alertness, the distressed sleep, the nervous system that's always on the lookout for danger, these are the results of a brain that's been wired for crisis. 
and these substances seem able to rewire the brain back into a more relaxed state. Kate Harrington is lucky. She's been able to cobble together a lifestyle that's helped her deal with her own basement baggage. She's got a good therapist. Occasional meditation, exercise, antidepressants for a while, lots of reading up on the topic, and occasionally psychedelics. It's a bit like realizing you need to lose 20 kgs. You're not just going to pop a pill and shed all that weight overnight. You do need to do some hard work. And she has the means to do it. But then I went trawling through the literature to find some hard numbers for the extent of trauma and mental illness in South Africa. How many of us are traumatized, depressed, anxious, acting out, self-medicating, hurting those around us? I wasn't struck so much by the numbers, and believe me, they're there. But there's something a bit sterile about throwing out percentage points and means and averages. What jumped out at me when I started reading up on this was that the researchers don't talk about South Africans being exposed to single traumatic events. They talk about us living in a permanent state of traumatic arousal. The onset of PTSD can come from any number of traumatic events, like, say, physical violence from a parent or a partner, or rape, assault, being stalked, witnessing a terrible accident or seeing a murder, losing a loved one unexpectedly. But in many South African communities, this kind of thing happens day after day after day. Given our country's abnormally high rates of abuse, crime, etc., particularly in very poor communities, children live in circumstances where traumatization is more of a condition than an event. A book by the Medical Research Council on Trauma says the issue goes further than just dealing with the ongoing exposure to traumatic experiences. Kids have to cope with this in the context where they have few safe places to run to, where they deal with the daily grinding anxiety that comes with living in poverty, where family structures and parenting coping capacity is worn way down, where the schooling system is failing, where there's very little help by way of mental health services. There's a chilling piece of research by Witt University and the civil society organization Sonke Gender Justice, which is a snapshot of what happens when traumatized kids grow up. The research was done in the desperately poor community of Deepsluit, outside Johannesburg, in 2016. Researchers interviewed 2,600 men in that community to try and understand the extent of sexual violence there. The feedback was staggering. 55% of the men they spoke with said that they'd abused a woman either sexually or physically in the previous year. And 60% of them admitted to having done so more than once. Mia Malan is a health writer with the weekly newspaper The Mail and Guardian. In one of her reports on the research, she explains what's going on here. She says that rape and sexual violence like this have very little to do with sexual desire. Rather, it's an act of violence and a form of power. There's also no single reason why men rape. But the evidence shows there's a strong link between what happens to you as a child and how you behave as an adult. Childhood trauma is at the root of most of the violence and this need to assert power. 
the men in this study who had experienced abuse as youngsters were five times more likely to use violence against women in their adulthood. Another study by the Medical Research Council, which looked at the number of rapes in KwaZulu-Natal and the Eastern Cape over a period of time, found that 27% of the men surveyed in the study had raped a woman. That's around one in four men resorting to such violence. When this group was questioned further, half of them said that they had been bullied or abused as children. In the Dipslurt study, where over half of the men admitted to having violated a woman, 85% of them said that they'd been abused as boys. Here's another quote from Mia Malan's Mail and Guardian report. She writes, Children exposed to physical, emotional or sexual violence in their home or the community are far more likely to themselves become involved in violence later in life. Boys as the perpetrators of that violence or girls as the victims. But they're also at increased risk of experiencing a host of other social problems, including psychological distress, alcohol abuse, poor school performance and increased involvement in crime, including interpersonal violence. In South Africa, according to the study, one in three of our country's children who are under the age of 17 have been abused in some way. One in three. As Mia writes, we are in effect breeding a nation of abusers and victims. Depression and alcohol also stoke the fire of abuse. Half of the men in the Dipslurt study were found to be depressed and those that were depressed were three times as likely to be violent towards women. Half also showed symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Three quarters of the men in the study reported problematic drinking, either daily or occasional drinking, and this increased the likelihood of them abusing women by 50%. The reason for South Africa being such a uniquely unequal and violent country is a subject for a whole book on its own. But suffice to say this, you don't rip families and communities apart through generations of migrant labour and apartheid laws and set up entire neighbourhoods so that children are born into an ongoing trauma of deprivation and violence without reaping this kind of a whirlwind. I know this is getting heavy, but it's like we're suffering from a chronic state of national PTSD. And the tragedy of it all? Few of the traumatised and broken men and women in that deep slurred study and similar neighbourhoods around the country will have access to any mental health services. How on earth do you break the self-reinforcing cycle of trauma and violence and deprivation? Let's think about some medical breakthroughs for a second. Simple, reading glasses. How much harder would your life be without these simple prosthetics of the eyes? A hundred years ago, A simple infection like a tooth abscess could kill you. And then we discovered penicillin. What about the miracle of a C-section for a mother who's struggling to give birth? Or the implications of something as simple as birth control and what that means in terms of giving a woman agency over her body and her education and her economic prospects. Think about insulin for diabetes, morphine for pain. And what about new breakthroughs that are on the way? Spray-on skin for burn victims, made from their own stem cells, so that they don't have to go through the hell of skin grafts. Or 3D printing to grow new organs. Severed spinal columns mended using this technology. 
These will one day be mundane medical procedures the way eye lens replacement or cataract surgery is today. Now, imagine there was a breakthrough medical technology for the treatment of emotional illness, the way antibiotics are now used to treat infections. Imagine you're that young man in deep slit. You've bailed on high school. You can't get a job for love or money. You're always broke. You think your girlfriend might be about to ditch you. And you're haunted by the ghost of a father who beat you senseless every other night before you could even read. You feel useless. You feel like you've got nothing to contribute. And you're toxic with rage. And then you hear that there's a treatment being offered down at the local medical clinic, where you sit with a group of other men just like yourself and you do a bit of counselling. Okay, so maybe you're not so keen on the counselling bit, but it does mean that you get access to the whole programme. And the whole programme means that you get to take a drug over just two sessions that will help ease some of that rage that's eating you up inside. It may not be a silver bullet solution. It's not going to fix your job prospects or your empty wallet, but it might put the brakes on your self-destructive spiral just enough to claim back some agency in your shattered self. And better still, it's paid for by the state. Is that such a crazy idea? It took Kate Harrington nearly two years to get the courage to do a full mushroom journey, taking the five-gram dose that I mentioned in episode one. When she finally sat down with a glass of warm, sweet tea in her hand and stirred the powdered psilocybin mushrooms into it, she was so ready. It was about seven on a clear winter's night. She was with four friends. The foam mattresses were lined up on the floor of someone's lounge. The lights were dimmed. There was a lineup of sacred world music on the playlist. Flames painted the bricks at the back of the hearth. A journey guide was tending to them. She lay back, arms at her side, palms up, eyes closed, and thought, please be gentle with me. It wasn't long before her body started to slowly dissolve around her, allowing her to step out into the dark, vaulted space where giant architectural lines began to tower overhead against the cavernous space above her. The lines were strangely thin and insipid, though. She had been expecting more from the sacred geometry. It was as if a female form leaned towards her and whispered, Disappointed, hmm? Yeah, a bit, she said. You disappoint yourself a lot, though, don't you? The feminine said back to her. If she could, Kate would have nodded. This feminine thing spun away mischievously, kicking up her heels, and disappeared off into the darkness. And then, as if she was just showing off, the sacred geometry erupted, neon lines exploding, pulsing to the music as if the beats were the brickwork that held these arches together. Somehow, the material structure of the architecture of the sacred geometry was held up by the music, but also moved with it. The feminine form came back, almost winked as if to say, gotcha, and then she skipped off into the fray. There was no sense of time, just an ecstasy of colour and movement and sound and joy. And then things changed. The geometry became white lines against a cobalt blue. 
jagged lightning strikes seemed to lash towards her in the grip of a masculine force. It was as if the geometry itself was whipping her. What? The lashes kept coming. That hurts, she said. It went on. Okay, enough. And it went on. Stop. And the masculine form answered her. But this is what you do to yourself every single day. Please, just stop. An image flashed in her head, one of her favourite routes up the back of Table Mountain, where she regularly cycled her way along the contours to be free of the anxiety during those dreadful months of the relationship. There was a resounding clarity. This is how you punish yourself. Okay, I get it, she said. I get it. Now you can stop. No, he answered. You don't understand. This won't stop. Not as long as you keep punishing yourself like this, it won't stop. The lashing, the painful lashing, it seemed to go on for hours. Finally, she understood, not just in her head, but in her body. Every mountain summit, every midnight hour chained to her desk, every shot of whiskey, every minute of self-inflicted solitary confinement, every hour of imposed hunger, All that self-induced pain was her attempt to be master and controller of the pain. If she had to feel pain, she wanted to be the one inflicting it on herself, not the victim of some external force that was delivering the pain. Okay, I get it. Please stop. The masculine form answered her. But it will never stop. It will never stop. And then she realized, oh, sweet Jesus, it will never stop. The singularity. In mathematics, it's a point where a function takes on infinite value. From the Latin word singularis, meaning alone, of its kind. In that moment, Kate returned to the origin of her own singularity. That slight seven-year-old figure crouched at the top of the stairs, not a single other soul alive, no other person anywhere in that universe. The desolation of that moment pressed down on her as if it was squeezing the moisture from every cell in her body. It all made sense now. She rolled forward into her hands and wailed. But she wasn't crying for herself, she was crying for everyone. She finally understood, this is what it means to be human and to be lonely. This is what everyone feels. Everyone. In that moment, it felt as though she died. And then, as though she was born, her body was covered with snot and mucus, and she was born out the other side of the singularity, laughing, crying, understanding. As if the fog of everyday thought was burned away by the sun, everything became clear. Her entire life, since the singularity, had been about using words and stories to make sense of this crushing loneliness. Years of telling other people's stories about their own troubled lives in an unfair world was her attempt to get to grips with this incomprehensible thing. By giving shape and form to other people's suffering, she could understand her own. If she could take their pain and build a creature out of this inanimate thing, 
if she could construct something with articulated limbs and artificial skin and mechanically blinking eyes and stuck-on bristles for lashes, she might be able to attach strings to it and maneuver it. She would be the master of the pain, not it of her. But now she saw that the pain will not be owned. It will not be controlled. It will not be tamed. Now she saw her role as different. Since she had survived all those years of pain, her stories might become a way for other people to make sense of their own suffering. The day before Kate went on her mushroom journey, a tower block in London went up in a horrific blaze. One of the first stories to make it into the press was of a young woman seen dropping her four-year-old girl from the fifth story towards a man who was standing with outstretched arms on the street below. For Kate, as the psilocybin began to wear itself out, leading her back towards her physical self, she fully understood the stories of these three people. The terror of the young mother as she stood in her home while the smoke and the flames clawed their way higher up the building. The horror of having to drop her baby into some unknown fate below. The child, surrounded by heat and smoke and screaming, wrenched from her single point of connection and love in the world and plummeting into an abyss. The bewilderment of the man on the street below, seeing this child plunging towards him, not knowing if he would catch her and break her fall. And he did, miraculously. The newspaper reports say that he caught the little girl to his chest and she lived. Now it all became clear. For most of her life, Kate had been that plummeting four-year-old girl, trapped in an endless tumbling through space, torn away from her love connections, panicking, crying, falling to some unknown end. But now, finally, the fall had been broken. She had been caught by herself. She was the stranger on the street below, and now that she had survived the fall, it was her job to stay there, eyes looking upwards and arms at the ready, because there are many more falling babies that need to be caught. for joining me on this journey. If you missed previous episodes, please visit the website psychonauts.co.za or you can catch up via iTunes. Many of the names and the details of the people who appear in the series have been changed to protect their identities. The author, that's me, Leonie Chabert, and my partners in the Psychonauts. We aren't endorsing the therapeutic or recreational use of psychedelics. This podcast is founded on the principle of harm reduction, word spreading about the potential benefits of psychedelics. But because they're illegal, it's driven them underground, where it's hard to monitor and safely regulate their use. This podcast aims to open up that conversation, as well as put some evidence-based ideas out there about the risks associated with unsupported therapeutic or recreational use of the substances. The kind of psychedelic experiences discussed in this series should only be done under the supervision of a skilled professional and in a safe environment. 
and people with a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia should steer well clear. Speak to an informed family doctor or psychiatrist to find out more. Oh, and don't go out foraging for wild mushrooms. No matter how good you think your mushroom identification skills are, it's really hard to tell the lethal ones from the safe ones. As the old saying goes, all fungi are edible, but some only once. <laughs>